You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How are you? Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Glad to have you with us. Uh, We're in a series called In Columbia As It Is In Heaven, talking about Jesus' plan to bring his kingdom to earth and Columbia and Lexington. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke 19. We have some setup to do before we get there, but get there we will. And while you're turning in your Bibles, I'd love to open us up in prayer this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thanks for the privilege of gathering together to open up your word and uh, see what you have to say about life. And I pray that you would speak supernaturally through your spirit this morning in ways that uh, I certainly can't, that you would encourage and convict and challenge in uh, supernatural ways. And uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uh, the gospel that makes us family. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right. So while you're turning to Luke 19, we are trying to become compelling disciples of Jesus, uh, like we talked about in week one, who are covered in the dust of our rabbi, who are following him so closely that we start to look like him. And that's what his strategy has always been, to bring his kingdom to earth. And before he actually ascended to heaven, Jesus, at the end of Matthew, gave his disciples what is called the Great Commission. He told them to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. They were to do this in his power, as he told them, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And if you are not uh, aware of what happened... That has happened because those disciples made disciples and those disciples made disciples and those disciples made disciples on down the line until we get to you and I in this room. This is Jesus's mission. This is his plan to bring his kingdom to earth. And he's still with us to this day as we seek to make disciples. And we've been going through the practices on our missionary member covenant during this series to paint a baseline picture of what a disciple of Jesus does and how we follow him in ordinary life and become like him. So the concept for this week is going to sound familiar because you hear it all the time in our vision statement. And here's how we've languaged this idea of making disciples in our missionary member covenant. Mission brings the kingdom of heaven here on earth through communities of Jesus-centered followers marked by faith, hope, and love. Therefore, I commit to hospitality and sharing my faith through everything I do by the power of the Spirit. So this is our mission component of our member covenant. And we use the term missionary member intentionally because we believe that every Christian is a missionary. Every Christian is a disciple maker, according to Jesus. And you'll notice that we intentionally place the word hospitality in there. And if that surprises you, we didn't didn't pull that out of nowhere. It's actually a Bible word and a command for us as Christians. Let me show you quickly. Romans 12 is a manifesto in what it means to be the church. And here's what it says. Starting in verse 12, it says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. 1 Peter 4.9 says it this way, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I wonder why he thought people would grumble about hospitality. And here's my personal favorite, Hebrews 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That brings up some really fun theological questions, doesn't it? 
And those are just the commands to practice hospitality. A little bit later, we'll talk about how the life of Jesus actually displayed this crystal clearly. The eating and drinking and sharing life with those far from him was Jesus' MO. It's what he did. So starting with Jesus and continuing in the history of the church, there's this ancient practice of hospitality. And the Greek word for hospitality is philozenia, which quite literally means uh, philo, brotherly love, like Philadelphia, uh, xenia, stranger. So brotherly love of the stranger. It's a heart posture of welcoming someone into your world in love. And this pursuit and invitation not always, but often happened around meals, around tables, During much of early church history, in the midst of persecution, a lot of church gatherings happened in homes. So you'll see this throughout the New Testament in greetings of letters as Paul greets believers and says, you know, to the church that meets in their house. So the gospel spread primarily around dinner tables for so much of the history of the church. And in our culture today, I would argue we need a good old-fashioned revival of this ancient practice. Good old-fashioned revival. It's good to start with, and it's commanded of us, but I want to present the argument today that it's especially critical for our specific time and place, and I'm going to tell you why I believe that. So the message of gospel is always the same forever, but it gets contextualized into the different cultures that it goes into. And sociologist Philip Reef breaks down Western cultures into three primary categories. We'll hit these real quick. First is pre-Christian cultures. Pre-Christian cultures. So think of a a tribal pre-modern people or Celtic Ireland or Europe before the gospel was ever preached there. So people in these cultures have never heard the name of Jesus. Their societies are not largely based on Judeo-Christian principles. And sometimes you have uh, slavery and child sacrifice and other immoral things baked into the culture. There, There were gods and goddesses behind every bush. So if you go into one of these cultures as a missionary, what is your approach going to be? You have to start from scratch because they don't know anything. We've seen an example of this in Acts 17 when Paul goes to Athens and they have this pantheon of different gods and one as a temple to the unknown God. So they had a category for, hey, we might be missing one, so let's have this here for the unknown God so he won't get mad at us. And Paul looks at that one and goes, let me tell you about the unknown God. He does not dwell in temples made by man. And then he teaches them about Jesus. Next, we have Christianized cultures. Christianized cultures. There's no such thing as a Christian culture. It's always a mix of Christian and pagan or Christian and secular culture. But a Christianized culture is where the cultural norms push you toward the way of Jesus rather than away from it. So it's a culture largely based on Judeo-Christian moral principles. There's a high value for the Christian faith and its moral framework. So this is England 100 years ago or Middle America in the 1950s. The 50s were the height of church attendance in the U.S., so it's this idea that being a Christian is not difficult culturally and probably even brings some benefits into your life, if we're being honest. Now, most of us grew up around the South, so you know when it comes to this and mission, it brings its own challenges because when something becomes normalized or so popular, it can become meaningless in a hurry, So in this kind of culture, just because someone calls themselves a Christian, does that mean they actually are a Christian? That's not hypothetical. Answer the question. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
it can be really confusing. They have some familiarity, but they can actually be deeply confused. They might just be inoculated to the gospel. They have just enough awareness to be immune to the true reality. I'm sure most of us know people who would say they're a Christian, but there is no evidence whatsoever that they actually are. And they do not see themselves as a sinner in need of grace who has once and ongoingly asked Jesus to forgive them and save them by grace alone. They just think they're a pretty good person. And they grew up going to church occasionally, so they call themselves a Christian. But there's no evidence of spiritual fruit or growth in their life. And that makes them a cultural Christian, not a biblical Christian. So here, you actually have to spend intentional effort somehow helping those people see that they are, in fact, not a Christian according to the Bible. And that can be a tricky conversation, right? It can be a little dicey. So you know how you've thought all of your life that you're a Christian? Can we talk about how you're probably not (laughs) over some food? It's always fun. But when people know they aren't Christians in this type of culture, typically the barriers for them entertaining that idea are often lower. So you don't have to deconstruct pagan deity structures because they already have some framework. You can maybe invite them to a church gathering or Bible study or small group, and there's a chance they might be interested in coming. And then lastly, post-Christian cultures. Post-Christian cultures. This does not mean a culture has moved on from Christian culture. In fact, it, and so many values and vision come from the fruit of Christianity, things like human rights and dignity and equality. Those things are rooted historically and by process of thought in the Christian tradition. And it's based on what Jesus called the kingdom of God. But post-Christian cultures says, hey, we want the kingdom, but not the king. We want the kingdom, we want the fruit, but not the authority, not the king. Post-Christian culture is a reaction against Christian culture. It's not unlike a rebellious teenager who thinks, mom and dad are stupid. They're so dumb. I know what's best for my life, but of course I still want access to the fridge and the Wi-Fi. People here are likely just as or more open to some kind of quasi-Buddhist mindfulness or New Age spirituality or Hinduism or even Judaism than they are to the way of Jesus. Not necessarily because they've critically come to those conclusions, but because the God of Scripture is not cool anymore. He is their grandparents' God who is behind the times, and he comes with some bad PR that you do not want to be associated with in this type of culture. So here there is a growing hostility to Christianity and Jesus. And increasingly the thought is that Christianity and its moral framework and restraints, and especially its sexual ethic, is actually immoral. It's oppressive and it harms people. So from this stance, there's actually moral judgment decreed upon God. One person I heard talk about this is about 40, and he said that when he was a teenager, his friends did not share his Christian sexual ethic, but they had respect for it. And they thought, your view of sex is higher than mine. I just don't want it. Now, he says, 20 years later, is similar but different, where his friends do not share his Christian sex ethic, but they actually think his sex ethic is lower than theirs. 
that it's regressive and immoral. That's a telltale sign between a a Christianized culture and a post-Christian culture. A real disdain and hostility begins to take root, and Christians become decidedly uncool. And there are no wider benefits gained from saying that you're a Christian. But even if there is no real hostility, a culture can still be post-Christian in the way that its people think about going to church on a Sunday morning, and they're just like, why? Why would I ever want to do that when I can sleep in or go to brunch or go to the lake? It's a baffling idea. So that all begs the question this morning, what are we? What are we? I would say it kind of depends because each one of us has different backgrounds. In general, I'd say we are on the receding waves of a confused Christianized culture with significant elements of post-Christian culture breaking in. We are not New York City or Portland or San Francisco, so that's a big difference. But the advent of the internet and the smartphone has affected us in drastic ways. And if you add in the fact that each of us is now surrounded by a completely unique media environment built by Google and Apple, suited to give you more and more of the things you've clicked on in the past, And that all of those tech giants have their own agendas, and that affects us even more. So there's some individual complexity to this. But as a whole, I'd say we have some significant leftovers from Christianized culture. So we have the confusion part to deal with. We have to have some of those awkward conversations with people. And then we also have some openness there, where occasionally you'll have a friend or coworker who might be open to the idea of coming to church with you or a small group. But we also have quickly inbreaking elements of post-Christian culture where if some of your coworkers or neighbors find out that you're a Christian, they could absolutely get weird around you or possibly judge you and feel morally superior to you and your backwards worldview. And for some of you, because of your occupation and what news sources and people you follow online, honestly, you might as well live in San Francisco because that's the, that's the bubble around you. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield said this. She said, let's face it, we have become unwelcome guests in the post-Christian world, where conservative Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become an Orwellian nightmare. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply anymore. Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. So what do we do with that? What do we do in response to that? That's the big question I want us to focus our time on today because most of us have been grafted into God's kingdom and it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. We're more and more experiencing life to the full as Jesus said he came to bring and and God has put a love in our hearts for a neighbor, a coworker, a friend or someone at the gym who's far from Jesus but sometimes we just aren't sure what to say to them. And you want the best thing that's ever happened to you to also happen to them but you also fear that the They'll think you're proselytizing them or or selling them a product. And there's just all this confusion. So how do we invite people to have life to the full in Jesus in a cultural environment where there's hostility and confusion and it's not PC and we feel weird and awkward? 
One option is we just don't, right? That's bad option number one is keep your head down. Keep your head down. That was old school. We've moved on from that. We turn our home into a castle. We just wall up. When we're in public, we just keep our head down and keep quiet about what we believe. In a secular post-Christian culture, it's widely thought that it's wrong to push your beliefs on other people. Ironically, that's actually a belief that's been pushed upon us, but that's another story for another day. So all this tension and pressure just forces us into silent mode. Another bad option is we just edit the way of Jesus. We Photoshop Jesus. Maybe we update it to suit nominal cultural Christianity and say Jesus is totally cool with your faith being meaningless in your life. You live your life however you want. Spend your money and your time however you want. Just try to make it to church a few times a year, okay? Please. Hey, look, we're doing something really cool this Sunday. Look, you don't want to miss this. The pastor's doing jumping jacks. You just lower the bar until it becomes meaningless. Or we edit it for a secular post-Christian context and say that Jesus is totally cool with any sexual or identity preferences you have. We take out all the parts that aren't PC, which changes every five years, so it's hard to keep up with, but you just keep changing things in order for hypothetical Jesus to only pronounce judgment on what the culture pronounces judgment on. But he's okay with whatever the culture values. It feels very convenient, and that's because it's decidedly unchristian. God is not the king there. You are. Because whenever you and God disagree, you win. So neither keeping your head down or photoshopping Jesus are good options. But the good news is there is a third option. Hospitality. An ancient practice that needs a good revival. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Let's look at how Jesus modeled this as a way of life. We'll start in verse 1 of Luke 19. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You guys remember him from VBS? He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So what just happened is Jesus, like a boss, just invited himself over to this dude's house for dinner. And this was a bold move because in Middle Eastern culture, meals were very intimate gatherings. You would lounge on the floor around a small, short table and enjoy a quality meal together. Okay? This was not a quick pop into Chick-fil-A to try the new mac and cheese. Okay, This was a, an intimate affair. Verse 6, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So tax collectors and prostitutes were the most ostracized and hated people in their culture. And that doesn't really translate for us because while we probably hate the IRS, we don't hate them nearly as much as they did. Tax collectors then were actually traitors to their nation who went to work for the Roman oppressors and made money off of their own people by cheating them. So they were hated. 
And prostitutes were, were similarly looked upon with disgust. And, and we are so sexually desensitized that a prostitute doesn't even evoke a strong feeling whatsoever in us. We're just like, whatever. So to translate the level of cultural disgust they felt over this, we have to think of some different examples. The disgust meter would be more equal if you think about maybe Jesus going to eat dinner with an ISIS member in an Afghan cave or something like that, or a white nationalist who marched in Charlottesville, or whoever it would be in your mind where you go, um, Jesus, if you're hanging out with that dude, we have a problem because I am totally not okay with that. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Remember that phrase. So the end result of this encounter was repentance and salvation for Zacchaeus. And and Jesus announces the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What a catchy phrase. But these people were a a very oral culture, and most of them couldn't read. So Luke's letter would have actually been read out loud in entirety in a house church. So they picked up on themes and repetition far more than we do. This was a long time before written text became common. This was millennia from ways that you can emphasize certain things in writing, like with bold or underline and italics, right? That wasn't a thing then. So for their culture, the primary means of emphasizing something was to repeat it. Their ears were tuned to remember and internalize and catch repetition in ways that we can't even relate to. So when Jesus said that statement, they would have remembered, hey, he said this before. Earlier in this book, he said this before. It comes back in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is interacting with some Pharisees here who's the polar opposite of a tax collector. And he says this, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." The Son of Man came eating, drinking, eating and drinking. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This was a primary part of Jesus' strategy, eating and drinking with people. Theologians have remarked that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is most likely going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Sounds like a pretty good life to me. He goes to the Pharisee's house, the the religious and confused who thought he was in but was actually out. And he also goes to the tax collector's house, the person who would have been hated by everyone and who would have hated religious people because of how much they despised him. Jesus eats with everybody. And a lot of Jesus' ministry and a lot of his navigating tricky waters and saying difficult things happened over a meal. And I don't think this is an accident. There's something uniquely Godward wired into meals. Meals are crucial and central throughout Scripture. They're places of connection and meaning. You know, it's really easy to hate someone on Facebook, isn't it? Give me honest, it's, it's easy. 
It's easy to hate someone on Facebook. You see their remark and it's disconnected and virtual and disembodied and you just hate them. It's a lot harder to hate people when you're having a meal with them. I had an experience recently where I found myself going to eat a meal with someone I didn't know and based on the very little I did know about them, to be honest, I wasn't excited about it. I wasn't excited about it. He wasn't the type of guy I tend to have a lot in common with or enjoy talking to. And I kid you not, by the end of dinner, I had so much fun that I was like, hey, when can we do this again? Let's do this again. It totally changed my perspective on him. If we would have not shared that meal, that wouldn't have happened. I would have just continued a a distant eye roll about him. And in our culture, which is, again, on the heels of a confused Christianized culture and quickly shifting into a post-Christian culture, this practice of hospitality has so much power. Has so much potential because in a Christianized culture, there's some uh, amount of built-in credibility and trust. But in a post-Christian context, that is gone. The opposite is there. And Christianity is thought of as regressive and stupid and harmful. And the people living there probably don't even know any Christians they even like. So following Jesus' footsteps and practicing hospitality as a way of life is crucial to where our culture is headed. And as we are on mission together as disciples of Jesus in a setting moving in this direction, I want to give you a few things that people are going to be helped by. The first thing is interactions that build credibility. Interactions that build credibility. So in a culture moving in the direction of post-Christianity, you're starting from a hole. Because people's first response to your faith isn't going to be, I'm intrigued, tell me more. It's going to be, ugh, no thank you. Sociologists have a term they call a plausibility structure, which means a set of ideas that make some outcome seem like a plausible thing in your life. In that type of setting, there's not a strong plausibility structure for someone envisioning themselves becoming a Christian. As one of my friends says, when he doesn't want to do something he's invited to do, he says, I'm sorry, I can't due to disinterest. I can't due to disinterest. (laughs) In the same way, they can't see themselves becoming Christians due to disinterest. So the goal here is just to be a normal Christian that loves Jesus, to be honest and trustworthy and genuine to be above reproach with business dealings at your job, to be kind and not react and speak out of anger, to be thoughtful and careful about difficult and contentious issues. The goal here is just to break their paradigm, to start giving them a plausibility structure so they can see how you live your life, that you're interested in them as a fellow human being. And even though they might still think what you believe is wrong and ridiculous, they start to like you as a person. These interactions that build credibility can happen anywhere in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at your gym, at your local park, at your dog park. But it helps even more if these interactions uh, happen over meals, whether at your lunch break or a local restaurant or coffee shop or at your place. Or maybe even be gangster like Jesus and invite yourself to their house. That's an option too. And a quick aside, some of you as we get going into this are like, hold up, what what if I don't have any relationships like this? What if I don't interact with coworkers or my life isn't currently structured to meet people? That's a great question. If that's where you are, you'll have to start by structuring your life differently and changing some of your routines or or maybe get a new hobby and join a gym. 
Get outside in your neighborhood and commit to meeting everyone that you see. There's a really simple way that you can do this. You just walk up to them and you say, I don't think we've met yet. What's your name? And you go from there. And a lot of adults are, are not very good at making new friends. And if that's you, I encourage you to come up with a short list of questions you ask people when you meet them. Go ahead and script it out. What are you going to ask them so that you won't have to think about it? I'll take all the stress and all the de- decisions away. Because the responsibility is on us to initiate. And if you wait on them, it'll probably never happen. And we have a gospel motivation for this because Jesus initiated with us so we can initiate with others, even if we risk being rejected or looking uncool. That is a small and inconsequential, inconsequential price to pay for joining Jesus to seek and save the lost. Secondly, friendships that build trust. Friendships that build trust. Uh, so quick exercise here. I want you to think of a religious or political or some other affiliation that is very far from where you are to the point where you don't remotely understand them and their very existence baffles you. Okay, you guys got that person in your mind? It's different for all of us. Picture that person, that affiliation in your mind. Now I want you to picture having a meal with that person. The setting doesn't matter, but you're somewhere eating semi-good tasting food with them, and that person is talking. Now here's my question for you. Are you listening to them? (laughs) Of course you're not listening to them because you don't want to. You think they're ridiculous. Why would you ever listen to them, right? Their very existence baffles you. If you do happen to listen, it's for the sole purpose of formulating what you're going to say back to contradict or disagree or maybe just annoy them. So when you start getting to know someone who exists in a post-Christian context, are they likely listening to what you're saying? Probably not at first. So to start, you'll be better off asking more questions and taking a genuine interest in who they are and what they think. As you talk about things, ask, hey, what what do you think about this? And where did you get those thoughts that you have? Did you read that somewhere? I'd like to understand more about that. Learning to be a good question asker and a good listener will take you far in this. This is a quote from Francis Schaeffer. He said, if I only have an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. And this trust building can happen anywhere, at your cubicle, on a group jog, anywhere. But where does it tend to happen best? Answer? Meals. Meals, Absolutely. And if you tend to struggle with this, I want you to know that Life Group itself is actually an incredible training ground for learning how to do all of this. It's a context where you get to learn how to make friends and ask good questions to people and listen and adapt your preferences to theirs and build trust and be a good friend. And of course, Life Group events and rhythms are a fantastic place to invite those far from Jesus in so they can get exposed to other believers who are interested in them and interested in being friends as well. And then lastly, number three, words of truth that make sense. Words of truth that make sense. This is the last part. And as we talk through the sermon in our teaching team, the general consensus among our citywide staff was that this might be our biggest area of weakness overall as a church. Now, don't get me wrong, not everyone is doing one and two. Some of our people are still waking up to any amount of spiritual purpose in their daily lives and relationships. 
But we've got some folks who are making headway on that end, on one and two, who are really trying to be good friends to those around them that don't know Jesus, who are really seeking to build relationships and friendships that build trust. But when it gets to the part where it becomes necessary to actually share the good news about Jesus, that step seems to be really hard. And in a culture where people increasingly think they already know what Christianity is, they've already dismissed it, and they have already decided they don't like it, it can be tricky. And again, no one wants to come across like a salesman, and there's a lot of anxiety about how to go about this in our culture. But on the flip side, if you think you have to be friends with someone for seven years before saying anything about Jesus, that's off, right? That's not a very good discipleship strategy. The gospel would still be like in Poland if that had happened up until now. Not a very good strategy. And as a group, I'd bet that we err more on the side of not saying enough quickly enough than we do on the side of saying too much too soon. And there are a lot of things we could say here, but the most important part is that we're actually beginning to share the good news of Jesus with our friends and neighbors. That's what we care about most because Romans 10 says, how will they ever know unless someone tells them? So we have to tell them with words. The method is secondary to that, but because this seems to be an area of uncertainty for us, we wanted to cover one quick tool for us to process as you move forward in hopes that it would be helpful for you in this step. We'll actually spend a majority of our life group time this week doing this, so this is just an introduction, but this tool we created for life group uh, this week is called Their Story, Your Story, The Story. And here's the big idea behind it. As you do parts one and two, you're essentially finding out their story. And every story has a past, a present, and a future. And we all orient our lives around stories to make sense of it all. So as you seek to have interactions that build credibility, one, and friendships that build trust, two, you're asking questions to find things out about their story. So starting with their past, you're thinking about things like, where are they from? And what was their family like growing up? What are their past experiences, positive or negative, with church and Christians? Who are the most important in shaping people and experiences in their life? And as you get to know them, you're always looking for clues about where they are looking for ultimate joy and satisfaction outside of Jesus. And then moving on to their, their present. What are their current beliefs about Jesus, about God, about Scripture? What are their biggest struggles in life? What are their biggest pains, their biggest problems? Where do they look for joy and meaning? And then to their future, what are their hopes and dreams for the future? What do they think is the biggest problem in the world? What do they think would fix that? What would heaven be like for them? If they can make life perfect, what would they change? Now, because the person is not a believer in Jesus, they are obviously not going to be operating from what we call the story, the story of God and the world or the gospel. So their, score, their story is going to be broken. And it seems like one of the more effective ways in our culture is to share your story with them of how God reached you and saved you. How he took you from where they are currently and brought you to where you are now. We see this every uh, baptism gathering when we hear people tell their stories. That's what we're doing. We're telling, I used to be here. Jesus saved me and now I'm here. So as you share your story, you look for connecting points and spirit-led times where you share with them how Jesus shaped your story and how you can connect them to God's truth and reality. So we think about your past, 
You share where you're from, what your family was like growing up, relevant things from your past. What are your past experiences, positive or negative, with the church and Christians? What are the most important shaping uh, people and experiences in your life? And as it is helpful, tell them about where you've looked for joy and satisfaction outside of Jesus and how that let you down in profound ways. Maybe most importantly, how did you realize that sin was the real problem in your life? How did you realize that your rebellion against God and his authority and his design for life was actually the biggest problem you've ever had? How did that insight happen to you? How did Jesus get your attention? And then your present, how did Jesus draw you to himself? How did he go about saving you and bringing you into his family? What are your biggest struggles and pains and problems in life? And most importantly, how does Jesus help you deal with those now that you are in Christ? How does he help you? What are you tempted to look for still for joy and satisfaction and meaning outside of Jesus? What are your uh, present sin issues that you're still battling and asking God to, uh, to work in in you? And then lastly, your future. What are your hopes and dreams? How has Jesus reshaped what you put your future hope in? How did Jesus convince you that sin is actually the biggest problem in the world? And how does he give you hope in that? And how was life with Jesus, both here now and eternally, better than any other counterfeit vision of utopia that's possible? How is God's story better than the story that they are living in currently that's not working? And through all of this, you're seeking to connect them with God's story. You're trying to answer the question for them, how is Jesus good news for their story? Because he is, he always and always is. And I'll wrap up with a quick story that illustrates this idea. Uh, several years ago, Christy and I got connected to a lady that lived in our neighborhood. We'll call her Susan. And Susan was very, very far from Jesus and wanted nothing to do with him. And as we got to know her, we realized that a lot of her revulsion to Jesus came from uh, very terrible experiences with the church and Christians when she was younger. She had one of those stories that's just so awful and hard to believe and experienced aggressive mistreatment by close family and friends who claimed to be followers of Jesus. So over the course of dinners at our house, we started piecing together her story through asking questions similar to the ones we just went over. And for a while, it was mostly just listening. She had some ways that she was trying to cope with her brokenness that were not working whatsoever. And she was starting to realize that, which was a blessed thing. She just had this empty weariness to her from her realizing that she, what she was doing wasn't going to fix her life. She wasn't ready to give up on it yet, but she was empty and weary, which is a great connection point to the gospel. She even joined our life group for a little while, but she was still very skittish. As we got more comfortable with one another, we attempted to connect her with God's story. Because in her story, God had become the villain. He was the bad guy behind all of the evil people in her life who had hurt her. So we had to take some time and try to tease that out and separate the two. We had to tell her, hey, Susan, I want you to know that God is not okay with what happened to you. In fact, he is furious about it. And in Romans, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So no sin done against you will go unpunished. Either the perpetrator will pay for it or Jesus. 
So God is for you, not against you. And with some of her life choices that were outside of God's design for life and sexuality, we started to share ways that we have had to trust God with our lives, even when we didn't understand. We told her that God wanted her joy, not her misery. And that joy is only found in surrendering everything to God and asking him to forgive you of your rebellion against him and save you and turning to follow him no matter what the cost. And I don't know how much time all of this took. It it happened here and there in spurts. And she came to our life group for a little while and she would back out. And after all of that, we kind of lost touch with her. She got busy, we got busy, life happened, and we didn't see her as much as we once had. And then we came to find out uh, months and months later that in God's providence, she got connected to another group of Christians that were a little closer to her age. And this process continued with them taking more of the lead and us supporting how we could. And before we knew it, Susan comes to us and says, guess what? I'm a Christian now. And we were like, no way. (laughs) Couldn't believe it. And it was not a clean process whatsoever. It was not linear in any way, shape, or form. And it involved more people than just us. And in my experience, that is pretty typical. As I watch the Holy Spirit go after people and draw them to Jesus, it's all over the place, and it is beautiful. So to wrap up today, Romans fifteen seven says this, Welcome others as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. Jesus has radically, warmly, hospitably welcomed us through truth and grace, and we are called to do the same for others. And from what I've seen, when we commit to doing that, he shows up and he works in incredible ways. So if you are not giving your life and time and attention to this, you are missing out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that um, you did not leave us to our own devices when we rebelled against you, but that you came after us um, in so many different forms. Through the, the story that is told to us in Scripture through um, bringing a people to yourself in the Old Testament to uh, show them what it looks like to live under your authority and, and show them their need for a Savior. Uh, through the person of of Jesus um, and supernatural life, death, and resurrection to um, live the life that we couldn't live and and die the death that we deserve so that we could be made right with you and be forgiven and be brought back into your family, that runaway traitors could be sons and daughters once again. So thank you for your unthinkable hospitality to us, your unthinkable welcome for us. I pray that we'd be astounded by that this morning, that we would be uh, moved by uh, your pursuit of us, your grace for us, your forgiveness for us, and your hospitality to us, that it would move us to want to welcome others the exact same way, that uh, welcome others the way that you've welcomed us. I pray that that would motivate us to uh, live hospitable, warm, welcoming, open lives where we are always on, um, have on our radar the, the people around us are, are hurting and broken and lost, and in need of uh, a Savior named Jesus, and that we would be intentional about uh, opening up our homes and our lives and our mealtimes and uh, everything we have available to us to welcome them into your family and, uh, and pray that you would save them. So we need your Spirit's help to do this. 
with all the, all the complexity in our culture, we need your help. We need your wisdom and your guidance. Uh, we thank you that you uh, told your disciples that you are with us always, even to the end of the age, that your, your Holy Spirit is, is with us to help us and guide us. And, uh, we need that desperately. So thank you for that. Help us to be aware of that and to live into that reality. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio from Midtown Fellowship in Lexington. We are in the middle of a two-month capital campaign to raise money to buy a permanent facility on East Main Street, right in the heart of Lexington, South Carolina. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate. Feel free to visit movetoeastmain.com for more information.